Hi, this is Brandon. Welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. Today's episode is going to be a little longer than the last one, so grab yourself a snack, settle in, and let's talk about safe places and untouchables. When the church doesn't provide a safe place for the hurting and the confused, it effectively eliminates itself as a source of counsel and wisdom, not to mention a place of sanctuary and healing. But safe places and a shame-based discipline system are incompatible with each other. So that's what we're talking about today. Let's talk about my history with shame. For pretty much all of my life, in many circles that I've inhabited, shame has been used as a primary tool to drive conformity. I grew up in that general culture. Just a few years ago, I remember a rather strong argument with a family member about shame. I argued that shame was a useful tool in helping to shape behavior. I believed that telling a child, you should be ashamed of yourself, was appropriate and helpful. The concept of saying, your actions brought shame upon this family, seemed to me like a good thing. In fact, shame seemed biblical to me. There are, in fact, are many verses in the Bible that discuss shame as a discipline technique. My family member was persuaded that I was deeply wrong and that my position actually misrepresented the heart of our Father in heaven. Since then, I've found that I no longer believe that shaming into obedience is a wise approach, and I find that it has deep implications for how I interact with people that violate my sense of right and wrong. But at the same time, I also recognize that there are biblical roots of my original viewpoint. So that's a contradiction that I need to resolve. So let's look at shame as a tool for persuasion. Lynn Bechtel's 1991 paper titled Shame as a Sanction of Social Control in Biblical Israel, Judicial, Political, and Social Shaming, which she wrote for the Moravian Theological Seminary, describes how the Bible presented shame as a tool for control and identifies how a shame-based discipline culture affects different kinds of societies. Essentially, Mediterranean cultures, and especially biblical cultures, have a very strongly group-oriented or sometimes called collectivist organization. Western cultures like the United States and Great Britain especially have strongly individualistic cultures. And Bechtel speaks of these two extremes as a group or collectivist and grid or individual. So group and grid. In fact, our American society has actually been assessed as the most individualistic culture in the entire world, with Great Britain right behind it. But within that individualistic context has always coexisted a very group-oriented society within religious circles. Bechtel considers shame to be more focused on the group orientation because it primarily requires external social pressures to do its work. For example, modern Eastern societies, especially Asian and Arabic, have this group-oriented mentality and their strong use of shame as a tool is evident. However, America has always been much more individualistic, limiting the value of shame as a tool, although its strong Christian practices and expectations have tempered this individualism for many generations. She uses the word sanction, and sanction is a way of saying its use as a threatened penalty. And so she writes about the sanction of shame, saying, The functions of the sanction of shame are primarily, one, as a means of social control which attempts to repress aggressive or undesirable behavior, Two, as a pressure that preserves social cohesion in the community through rejection and the creation of social distance between deviant members and the group. And three, as an important means of dominating others and manipulating social status. 
Now, the Old Testament is filled with the use of shame as a control mechanism. It was even formally sanctioned in the books of the law. The New Testament also often describes discipline in shame-centric language. For example, Paul says, I say this to your shame. Nearly all ancient societies were strongly group-based, and individuals basically derived their entire identity from that group. Any deviance resulted in shaming, which threatened separation from the group. So it was a very powerful tool. Bechtel identifies, however, that the problem with shame is that it inherently focuses the attention on personal inadequacy rather than the consequences of misbehavior. So it basically becomes about maintaining appearances and behavior modification, not growing the individual or the tangible benefits to society from the right behaviors. Now, she wrote this in 1991 before the social media explosion. And the modern practical consequences of social media is that we're transitioning even more strongly than uh, ever before from a group society to a grid society where individualism is increasingly rearing its head. And as a consequence, the church is losing its ability to force conformance and groupthink on society, even non-believers. Thus, the aspects of American society that used to be strongly collectivist are losing their authority over the culture. Now, I've watched the outrage over this individualism growing inside the conservative Christian community. There's deep fear that people separated from group thinking will not have any need to conform to expected norms of behavior, and they won't have that innate need for strong community that has historically held American culture uh, together and into a single unit. However, and I think somewhat perversely, the explosion of social media in America has also led many people, especially young people, to discover that their own confusing and still maturing self-identities are not unique, and that the long-held picture of group conformity in America society is in fact somewhat fictional. Previously, the use of shame in the mainstream of society was used to force conformance to a single norm, but honestly, nonconformity still existed, and in some ways it flourished, but it was beneath the radar of the collective-based church culture. So what we see developing now is this amazing patchwork of variety. Instead of a single massive norm, we see a wide range of, wide array of norms that are now being acknowledged. And what looks like fragmentation could instead be considered acknowledging what was honestly already and always there. Of these things, the concept of gender is, of course, one of the variations. Within certain parts of society, the idea that there's only two genders is obviously out of vogue right now. Even the pronouns he and she are suspect. Along with that is the concept of sexuality. The idea that one is either straight or gay is suddenly not universal. There's pansexual and bisexual, asexual, demisexual, and the list is still growing. Race is another area where the group dynamics are suddenly changing. Mixed race relationships aren't even notable in most circles now. And the latest census has even more race categories than ever before. And of course, since about the 1960s, the traditional family structure and lifetime monogamous marriage have been waning. And most conservative Christians would say they're actively under attack. So let's talk about things that have long been hidden. A perfect example of long-hidden undercurrent of reality is what is called intersex. And depending on the study or the source that you consult, generally it's widely medically acknowledged that at least one out of a thousand infants born today, if not more, have ambiguous gender characteristics. This includes unusual mixes of chromosomes, as well as normal chromosomes, but with mixed or ambiguous genitalia. And that rate is generally true worldwide. And this 
honestly presents a sharply defined problem for a conservative Christian who insists that God recognizes only and exactly two perfectly defined genders. But when a baby is born with both a penis and a vagina, or maybe an XY, in other words, genetically male baby, is born with no penis but a fully developed vagina, what can a Christian say? Um, Did God make a mistake? For decades, the medical response to that ambiguity has been an immediate surgical quote-unquote correction, followed by raising the child in the assigned gender. And many people would argue that this has often resulted in lifelong physiological and psychological damage to the individual. Now, this tendency covered up the problem, quote-unquote, for the immediate family, but it really doesn't address the deeper issue. While the cause of these variations could be environmental or maybe from a Christian perspective due to the long-term effects of Adam's original sin, the fact remains these variations exist, and they're fairly common, and the loving and faithful God that we believe in allows them to be born. So today, the LBGTQIA community affirms these non-normative individuals as just another intriguing variation not to be corrected to suit some religious worldview, but to be welcomed and honored as just as human as any other human. So while this sudden burst of LBG activity is distressing to conservative Christians, at some level it's simply revealing what has always been there, but it's been carefully covered up and ignored in our society. As another example, pedophilia and homosexuality have only been recently uncovered as fairly widespread within Catholic Church leadership, but of course they've been very well hidden for generations. Or as another example, it's fairly well documented that the infidelity and divorce rate within conservative Christian families is actually comparable to that of the world around the church. If marriage and family are under attack, it's not only from outside the church. And as with the intersex condition, it's a problem that the church has largely hidden for generations. Think about the fact that those who divorce are often shunned from conservative churches, which might lead one to the mistaken impression that the church is only full of faithful marriages. Well, that's not true. It only looks that way. So this has consequences for the church. Clearly, these changes are troubling for someone who is raised in the traditional Christian thought process. Only heteronormative, cisgender, binary people in monogamous, lifelong, faithful relationships are acceptable members of traditional Christian circles. What may be less clear, however, is that the result of these social changes hasn't lessened group culture. It's simply shifted to allowing more diverse groups to coexist, and in fact to specifically seek to honor each other's group identities, rather than trying to deliberately suppress and gain dominance over all the groups other than your own. In secular circles, it's become less about domination and really more about cooperation. One might even argue that modern secular culture is learning to show grace to those with vastly different viewpoints and persuasions. Yet the church, on principle and with plenty of scripture verses to back it up, staunchly and vocally resists these changes. If anything, it shows even less grace today than the world does. So where does this intersect with shame? Looking back at my life, it's clear that the way church culture norms were enforced was shame, pure and simple. If you violated them, you were shunned in one form or another. The shame extended well beyond the confines of the individual. The the whole family was shamed if a child violated the norms. And this is still definitely the case in many churches today. But if shame is in fact a biblical concept, why is it problematic? 
Well, the culture changes within these communities where they're happening are understood to be inclusive, not exclusive. Many conservative Christians don't appreciate this viewpoint. They perceive these changes as divisive and destructive of the very fabric of our society. But to me, it seems that the communities that are involved in this change think that the very goal of this regrouping, if you will, is to mend the fabric and preserve society. It's founded in a recognition that these groups have always existed, but they've long been shamed into silence or invisibility. At the same time, in essence, the message the church is increasingly sending has been, you don't matter because you're different. But within every human heart is a hunt for belonging and mattering. And within this brave new culture, a diversity of people have been shown that they do in fact matter, but just not to the church. To the world, it's the church that is now considered the very essence of divisive and destructive. So what now? Like it or not, the genie is out of the bottle regarding morality and sexuality. Thus, the question becomes, I think, what will the church do about it? Well, the purest answer is we have to fight against this change, but in my opinion, that's not helpful. We either do or we do not believe that God can save anyone and that with salvation and a true encounter with him will come the motivation for any necessary change in belief and behavior. If we really do believe that, then we have a responsibility to encounter and graciously share the gospel with those who are acting in ways that we don't believe are correct. This is really no different than trying to win the heart of an unsaved but heteronormative cisgender binary person in a monogamous, faithful, lifelong relationship who simply doesn't know God yet. But that task feels much easier because witnessing to someone who already basically acts right, if you will, is not as frightening to a devoted Christian with conservative behavioral norms. In short, it's a much more comfortable situation for witnessing, and really it feels more likely to succeed because they're already so close to what we expect of them once they're saved. But that doesn't relieve us of a mandate to win all for the kingdom. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone, of course, includes everyone. So the question becomes, are we willing to interact with, for the goal of loving and welcoming them into the kingdom, are we willing to interact with people who are non-heteronormative, non-cisgender, non-binary, non-monogamous, and fornicating? More to the point, can we do that without the use of shame? The moment we try and use that method of controlling behavior and forcing compliance with our ideas of normative, even in someone who isn't a member of the kingdom yet, we lose our voice with them. Remember, Jesus bore our sin and shame on the cross, as uh, Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 7 talks about. And he did that while we were yet sinners in Romans 5.8. He did that even, or especially, for those who violated his culture's sense of right and proper behavior. Jesus, the friend of sinners, Matthew eleven nineteen, who ate dinner with the cheating tax collector, Mark two thirteen through seventeen, who sat alone at the well talking with an immoral, adulterous woman, John four. He touched lepers, Matthew eight one through three. He was willing to become unclean to minister to those that were considered untouchable by his culture, and yet God considered him sinless. So, do we welcome all? Becomes the question. The issue of shame at the core touches on who a person is. It's their very being. Beyond simply dealing with one's actions, it has to do with whether a person's deepest identity is associated with those actions. It says, you're a bad person, instead of, you did bad things. 
But the message of the gospel is that God deeply loves us, period, while we were yet sinners. Unfortunately, the face that's presented to those outside the church is increasingly, we don't welcome you because you're not like us. In the past, that manifested most visibly in racial discrimination. Today, it's anyone and everyone who isn't normative to the church's concept of proper identity. To use old terminology, the list of those that the church considers untouchable is growing rapidly. What seems to be missed by many Christians today, though, is the practical consequence of treating those people as untouchable. Writing about the Texas abortion law that just got passed, the ProGrace website notes that, quote, four out of ten women who have abortions are regular churchgoers, but only 7% of them talk to anyone at their church before making this decision. They cite fear of judgment and lack of visible support for single moms as their two primary reasons. By not being a safe place to approach for help, We as the church have some complicity in aiding and abutting abortion. While it happens much earlier than paying for or performing the abortion, it's the very real source behind why so many church-going women decide to have an abortion, Well, the same thing happens with youth wrestling over gender or sexuality. There is zero doubt in their mind that their church and their Christian parents will never understand their search for identity. Everything they see and hear and read proves to them that the discussion will not be fruitful, and the only place they can turn for advice and acceptance of their core self-identity is others in that accepting, gender-flexible, sexually fluid world of their peers. In fact, the first time that most churches and parents learn about their non-conforming children is that coming-out speech after these issues have been completely settled in their minds. And at that point, they're willing to risk breaking a relationship to acknowledge their self-settled and their peer-welcomed identities. And in many cases, parents never even hear that coming-out speech because the children are rightly frightened of those religious consequences. Note that between 20 and 40% of homeless youth are LBGTQ people for this exact reason. They were disowned and shunned by their family and religious community, and the only place they have to go is the street. So the church by doing this, effectively eliminates itself as a source of counsel and wisdom, not to mention as a place of sanctuary and healing for them. So with this in mind, I'm increasingly focused on the need for Christians to be safe places for people to share their hurts and pains and concerns. When we focus on anything other than their status as children of God who loves them deeply and dearly, no matter their behavior and their seeking, we destroy any chance to build relationship and introduce them to their deeply loving, deeply forgiving Father. And this safe place absolutely must include our willingness to welcome people who choose behaviors that we were raised to shame and welcome those who are dealing with the consequences of those kinds of bad past choices. And the key word here is to welcome people. We have to welcome people, period. Now, this may require appearing to overlook bad behavior. But choosing not to focus on something is not the same as sanctioning it. It's been proven over and over and over that if you lead with, you have to change before you join us, then they're just not going to join us. To summarize, I think if we want to change the world, we're going to have to be willing to get messy, very messy. The world is messy, increasingly so, and if we're going to change it, mess comes with the process. I'm going to end with a quote from a Bob Dylan song, and rather presciently, in 1963, he wrote these lyrics. 
Come, mothers and fathers throughout the land, and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand, for the times they are a-changing. Thanks for your time today. I hope you can go look at this podcast uh, on our blog. Uh, there's a number of links there to some useful resources and sources for some of the quotes that I used in this episode. We'll see you next time. <laughs>